Evidence and Answers. Well-known atheist philosopher and critic of Christianity, Bertrand Russell, wrote in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, that historically it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. Skeptics today still question the historical accuracy of the Gospels and the miracles of Jesus. Is Jesus a historical figure? Or a legend? Are the events of his life recorded in the New Testament fact or fiction? Is there enough compelling evidence to believe in Jesus? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is a scholar, author, national and international speaker on apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Let's join Pat now as he presents a compelling evidence for Jesus Christ from a recent evangelistic message he presented. As we begin, let's open in prayer together. Father, we pray you would thrill us with your word and your son this morning from the message we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we begin, I grew up here in Hawaii, grew up in a Buddhist family, and attended a Episcopal private school here. As I grew up, I learned more about the Buddhist background, the Buddhist religion, the background of my family and my heritage, and I eventually rejected Buddhism because it was not a livable system. I went to a very liberal Episcopal high school and there I learned about the Bible stories, but rejected Christianity and the Bible as mostly myth and legend, which is what we were taught it was. Eventually I became an atheist and believed that all religions were simply built on myths. Well in high school, one of my baseball teammates became a Christian and in my junior year, he kept inviting me to church. Well, I reluctantly went one Sunday, and I sat in the back row, but after about the second hymn, I lost the battle to sleep, and I fell asleep through the entire service. Well, at the end of the service, I woke up and heard two verses that transformed my life forever. For the first time, I heard what the gospel was really all about. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that verse caught my attention because here the God of the universe was saying to me, Pat, I want to be a part of your life, and was inviting me to place my burdens upon him because he wanted to give me rest. All my life people told me, Don't bother me with your problems. I got enough of my own. But here the God of the universe is inviting me to cast my burdens upon him, my worries, my fears, all that I have, because he wanted to give me rest. I found that very interesting. Never heard that before. Never understood that that was what the gospel was all about. Well, then Pastor read another verse from Matthew chapter 28, the final verse where Jesus said to his disciples, and I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Again, that struck me because here the God of the universe was saying, I want to be a part of your life. And you know what? I'm committing myself to be with you always, to never, ever depart even in your darkest and worst of times, I'll never forsake you. Now I was impressed by this commitment. No one ever makes this kind of commitment. Even when many of us who have gotten married or will get married, the final line of that vow is what? Till death do us part. But here, the God of the universe states that he is entering into a commitment where he will never forsake or leave us. I never knew that the God of the universe was that interested in my life. I never knew he was making that kind of commitment to me. He promised an everlasting relationship, one in which he wanted to share in my deepest struggles and sorrows. 
and bring me rest. So I sat in the pew that day and I prayed to God. I said, God of the Bible, I said, if you're for real, I'd like to get to know you. Well, the next day I spoke to my school priest, told him about the message I had heard, what the gospel was all about, things that happened in church, and he simply smiled and he said, well, I don't take it so seriously. He said, doesn't matter what you believe, any religion is fine. Whatever you want to believe is fine, as long as it makes you happy. You can't take the Bible completely seriously. There's a lot of errors in there, and not everything in it is true. And I was shocked. I thought, well, here's a guy who studied all his life, and he doesn't seem to believe in the Bible or in a personal God. When my quest to learn more about the Bible, I signed up for his Bible class, and in his class, he presented information that put the inspiration and historical reliability of the Bible into question. I was taught there are many historical errors in the Bible. For example, Moses could not have written the first five books of the Old Testament. Daniel, the book of Daniel is simply a mythical hero of Israel because there's Greek in the book of Daniel. If Daniel is supposed to be written during the Babylonian Empire, why is there Greek? The Greek Empire doesn't come around till three centuries later. The Gospels, written about a century or two later, and therefore most of the information that we have is myths and legends that have crept into the text as people passed it on orally through the centuries. Well, I began to question the Bible and Christianity. I went to the church and I would ask people and no one really had any answers to these questions. And I began to think to myself, well, Christianity's the most wonderful message I have ever heard, but if it's not true, if it's simply built on myth and legend, then it's not for me. I would rather live in misery knowing the truth than live in happiness believing in a fantasy. And I began searching for answers to see if there's any good evidence to believe in Jesus Christ. The first question was, do we have reliable accounts regarding Jesus, His life, and His ministry? Now, the date of the Gospels is very important here. Do we have early testimony, eyewitness accounts, first-generation accounts of the life of Jesus Christ? Noted New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce, perhaps the premier New Testament scholar of modern times, gives strong evidence that the New Testament was completed well within the first century and that most of the New Testament books themselves were completed 20 to 40 years before this. The Dean of Middle Eastern Archaeology, the late Dr. William Albright, the founder, the granddaddy of Middle Eastern Archaeology, perhaps the greatest Middle East archaeologist of modern times, and he would not be in, in our evangelical camp. He states this, in my opinion, every book of the New Testament was written by a baptized Jew between the 40s and 80s of the first century AD, very probably sometime between 50 and 75 AD. Death of God theologian, the liberal Bishop Robinson, who rejected much of the New Testament as simply mythology, at the end of his life, after his extensive research, changed his position and one of his final books was redating the New Testament. He discovered from all the evidence that the New Testament documents, especially the Gospels, are written very early. They're first generation accounts written by eyewitnesses or their very close associates. And he moved the dates up very, very early. Well, we have a lot of evidence numerous lines of evidence that the Gospels are written very early. They're first-generation accounts. How do we know that? Well, we first look at the internal evidence, evidence within the Bible. Much of Christ's life and ministry are recorded in the first four books 
called the Gospels. In the Gospels, the apostles record a very important key prophecy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and in other Gospels. Jesus prophesies of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which occurred, we know, in 70 AD. Now, what's strange is that the Gospel writers record Jesus' prophecy, but never record its fulfillment. That's very strange. The temple of Jerusalem is the main structure in the religious life of the people of Israel. In fact, in Jerusalem in that time, it's the main structure in the entire city. In fact, even to this day, the Temple Mount, the Wailing Wall, portion where the Jews can go, still remains the most holiest site in all of Israel and to the Jews. It is the heartbeat of the Jewish religion. It's strange that the Gospel writers would record Jesus prophesying that this temple will be destroyed, but never record its fulfillment, which occurred in 70 AD. More importantly, the fifth book of the New Testament is the book of Acts, which tells us what happened after the resurrection, how the church spread the gospel message throughout the Roman Empire. Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts after the Gospel of Luke. And in the book of Acts, he never mentions the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. In fact, in the book of Acts, the Jerusalem temple is still a vital part of the Israelite culture. Therefore, we can confidently conclude that the Gospels are written before 70 AD. Now, that's powerful evidence in and of itself to show you the Gospels are first-generation accounts written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. It would be like this. If you walked into the local library here and you picked up a book on the history of New York City and you open the first page, and the copyright and date of writing are gone, so you don't know when this book was written. But you skim through the book, and you get to the final page, and you realize nothing is mentioned of 9-11-2001. There's no mention of the fall of the World Trade Center, and no mention of the key figures, Mayor Giuliani, Governor Pataki, President George Bush, and none of the events that followed 9-11-2001. Well, what would you logically conclude well, you will conclude that this book was finished before 9-11-2001. Same here. Luke never mentions the fall of the Jerusalem Temple, which occurred in 70 AD, nor does he mention other key events that preceded 70 AD. For example, he never mentions the Jewish war with the Romans that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple and scattered the Jews for almost 2,000 years throughout the world. He never mentions the death of the two key leaders of the church, Peter and Paul. In fact, the book of Acts ends on a very strange note. It says, Paul lived at home under house arrest, and people were able to visit him. And that's how it suddenly ends. Ends on a very strange note. We know, according to Josephus, that Peter and Paul were martyred under Nero in 65 AD, and it's very strange Luke never records their death. He records the death of lesser figures, the lesser-known James, Stephen, who's a deacon in the church, but of the two leaders of the church, he never mentions. The two guys who wrote most of the New Testament never mentions their death. 
He never mentions the death of James, who is the leader of the New Testament church, and he died in 62 A.D. So the book of Acts is written quite early. We have good reason to conclude it's written before 62 A.D. And in fact, in 1 Timothy 5.18, which New Testament scholars don't doubt Paul wrote, Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke. So Paul is aware of the Gospel of Luke. It's around. He knows it's inspired Scripture, and he quotes it as inspired Scripture. So we can conclude then that the Gospels are first-generation accounts. They're not written a hundred years later or so. They're first-generation eyewitness accounts. We can be quite confident of that. Remember, the destruction of the temple occurs in 70 A.D. The prophecy of Jesus and its fulfillment is never recorded in Acts or in the Gospels. The death of Peter and Paul is not recorded, and they died in 65 A.D. Therefore, we can conclude the book of Acts precedes the death of Peter and Paul, written before 62 A.D. Now, remember, scholars agree the Gospel of Luke precedes the book of Acts. Now we're moving the timeline way up, aren't we? Even more than that, though, most scholars agree that Matthew and Mark precede the Gospel of Luke. Therefore, we can be quite confident that the Gospels are first-generation eyewitness accounts written by eyewitnesses or their very close associates. They're not written centuries later, as many skeptics and critics allege. Now, early dating is important for these reasons. First, it ensures us that the events recorded are historically accurate since it's written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. These eyewitnesses could verify the accounts of the apostles as true or false. If what the apostles were preaching about Jesus is false, the eyewitnesses could have easily discredited their message and Christianity would never have survived. Remember, when the apostles began preaching their message, they're preaching in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel. The officials who crucified Christ, who want to stomp out Christianity, they are preaching in the most hostile place you could have picked. They were looking for any reason to discredit the preaching of the apostles and discredit and end the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it was a threat to their religious system. If the apostles were preaching exaggerations and myths and misinformation, could have been easily discredited. Too many eyewitnesses looking to discredit their message were still there. They were preaching in the face of a very hostile crowd, seeking any opportunity to silence their message. If there were any exaggerations, myths, misinformation, those enemies seeking to discredit the apostles would have done so. Second, historians have shown it takes two to three generations for legends to begin to develop. The reason is that eyewitnesses have to die and pass from the scene. Men and women who can verify your accounts as true or false need to pass from the scene. That's the pattern we see in numerous historical and other religious accounts. But in the New Testament, we've got first generation eyewitness accounts written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Not only that, we also know that the Gospels are very historically accurate documents. I was in a debate once on the radio, and an atheist said, well, if Jesus was such a famous guy, how come there's no other historical work written about him? 
Only the Gospels. If this is God in the flesh, you would expect someone else to say something about Him, but there is nothing. I responded and said, well, you're incorrect. We have close to a dozen non-Christian historical accounts that affirm many of the events and characters in the Gospels. In fact, you can call these anti-Christian historical accounts because when they write about Christianity or Christians or Jesus, they're very denigrating in the accounts that they give. Now, those of you who are familiar with law, you understand when your enemy affirms the testimony of your defendant, enemy attestation is one of the most powerful and most convincing evidences in a case in court. When your enemy has no reason to affirm and verify your facts, that's very compelling evidence, and that's what we have here. Now, we're not going to go through all of these non-Christian accounts. We went through a lot more last night, but I'll just go over two real famous ones. Here's Josephus, a first century Jewish historian. Ended up, is a very interesting story of how he betrayed the Jews and became a historian for the Roman Empire. But much of what we know that happened in the land of Palestine under the Romans comes from this man, Josephus. And he writes this in his book, The Antiquities. Now there was about that time a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous and many people from amongst the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days later after his crucifixion and there he was alive. Accordingly he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. In that brief paragraph there, Josephus summarizes the message of the gospel, that Christ was a real historical figure. He lived a unique life. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and many believed he was the Messiah and that he had risen from the dead. Another historian, Tacitus, very famous Roman historian, known for his accuracy, writes this. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. You can tell he doesn't like Christians. Christus, from whom the name has its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurators Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. So here Tacitus says there was a man named Christ, he died under the hands of Pontius Pilate, just as recorded in the Gospels, and that Christianity spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire, as recorded in the Gospels and Acts. And not only do we have non-Christian historical works, we have archaeological confirmation that the Gospels are indeed historically accurate. Christianity is uniquely a historical faith, and it's got thousands of historical evidences to back up and support the existence of the characters and events that took place. We have discovered Luke is an extremely accurate historian. Archaeologists have discovered he names 32 countries, 54 cities, 9 islands accurately. And his accuracy can be seen in his details, how he, the titles of government officials, he nails it right on. Even some of the titles that seem strange that many people thought he was mistaken, he's proven to be correct such as Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, Plubius, the first man of the island. These titles were very strange, but archaeology has confirmed 
Luke nailed it right on the head. Historian F.F. Bruce writes of Luke, a man whose accuracy can be demonstrated in matters where we are able to test it is likely to be accurate even where the means for testing him are not available. Accuracy is a habit of mind, and we know from happy experience that some people are habitually accurate, just as others can be depended upon to be inaccurate. Luke's record entitles him to be regarded as a writer of habitual accuracy. Sir William Ramsey, a skeptic, traveled to Palestine and Greece for the sole purpose of discrediting the Gospel of Luke and Acts. After years of extensive study, he concluded this, Luke is a historian of first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And he shortly after gave his life to Jesus Christ. Thousands of archaeological discoveries affirm the characters and events of the Bible. Let me just go through three with you. Here in a beautiful stadium in Caesarea Maritima, built in the first century, there is the beautiful stadium where they did the chariot races and an amphitheater that can seat about 2,000. And even without a microphone, you can stand on the stage and a person way at the top can hear you talking. Well, a plaque was discovered in 1961 of who built this stadium and why he built it. And it was built by, guess who? Pontius Pilate. And it stays here on the plaque. Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. Pontius Pilate was the governor over Palestine, and Tiberius was the emperor, just as recorded in the Gospels. In a royal chamber in 1990, the ossuary of Caiaphas was discovered. This is the head priest who sentenced Jesus to death. In 1968, a man was found. His name was still on the ossuary, Ben Johann Hagago. And it was discovered he was crucified just as described in the Gospels. In fact, the six-inch nails were still embedded in his ankle there. There's the reconstruction there, you can see. And in fact, his upper arms and shoulders, the bones were found to be worn down, obviously pulling himself up and down to breathe on the cross. The discovery affirms the crucifixion account of Jesus Christ. And finally, the Gospels have been accurately preserved. They haven't been changed and embellished over the centuries. How do we know that? Well, we have over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts, some dating as early as 120 AD, hundreds more papyrus and parchment fragments. We have early versions of the New Testament, the Syriac, Coptic, Latin Vulgate, and then we have quotes from the church fathers who in the first 300 years quote every verse of the New Testament except for 11. In all, we have 24,000 ancient documents from which we can look and compare. 24,000 documents from three different parts of the world which we can compare and see if the New Testament has been embellished and changed. And from being able to compare all these documents, we are very confident that the New Testament has been very accurately preserved. So, we have with us a first century eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. They're very accurate historically, confirmed by historical works and archaeology. Well, what did Jesus say about himself? Well, Jesus made a very astounding claim. He claimed to be the unique divine Son of God. 
In John chapter 8, the religious leaders asked Jesus, well, what gives you the authority to say the things you say and to claim the authority you have? They said, are you greater than our father Abraham, the father of the Jews who lived 2,000 years ago? And Jesus responded by saying, well, before Abraham was born, I am. The Greek phrase there, ego emi, from Exodus 3.14, Jesus was clearly claiming to be the divine Son of God. That's why in the following passages it states that the Jews picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy. They understood what he was claiming. Later on in John chapter 10, the religious leaders again asked Jesus, who gives you this kind of authority? And, and Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And the Jews replied, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood what Jesus was claiming, and he was claiming the authority that only belongs to God. Well, this concludes the first part of the message, but join Pat next week for part two of this message. If you've missed any part of this study, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen to this message and read Pat's articles on the evidence for Jesus Christ. All of the information and more are also presented in Pat's book, Unless I See, Is There Enough Evidence to Believe? In this book, Pat presents the compelling evidence for the existence of God, the inspiration of the Bible, the resurrection, and so much more. This is a great book for every Christian who wants to be an effective witness for Christ in our culture today. Pat's ministry with Probe International relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. And if you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join Pat next week as he concludes this message right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence and Answers.